Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast, broadcast from 3CR, your only radio left. Susanna here with you, and I'll be joined by other members of my Left After Breakfast team as the program continues. Your favourites for a start. So, welcome to regular listeners and indeed to anyone who has just tuned in. Good on you. We have a mixed house in this episode of Left After Breakfast. We'll hear about the campaign for paid housework. The BL from the Bush will be talking about protests and chatting with another veteran campaigner, Natasha. I'll ferret out the bagman for you. He will be recounting tales from an earlier life. His memoirs, you could say. So stay tuned. And some sad news this week with the loss of Dave Riley, artist, activist and gardener. He was a committed socialist and Marxist. He never stopped being politically active and he was an inspiration to all of us. I'll miss his wonderful and quirky sense of humour. So raise your glass to Dave Riley. Of all the money that I had, I spent it in good company. And all the harm I've ever done Alas, it was to none but me. And all I've done for one dumb wit to softly call good night and joy be to you all of all the comrades that e'er I had the sorry for my going away and all the sweethearts that e'er I had they wish 
Give a shout out to Senator Maureen Faruqi, who was so disgustingly treated by that handsome woman recently. And I have been trying to find the part of her speech which she gave to Parliament. It's really difficult to find, very hard to track down, probably too hot for the mainstream media to report on because it again highlights the damaging impacts of colonialism. It was beautifully delivered too, but I finally did manage to get the words, and she said, I will not be silenced, especially on the topic of the British monarch and monarchy, the head of an empire which ruthlessly colonised, plundered, looted and divided the land of my ancestors. Truth about the empire must be told. I will not toe the line and participate in a willful delusion about the monarchy which exists to maintain white supremacy and to make all the beneficiaries of colonialism feel comfortable at the expense of its targets. Over centuries of rule, over most of the Indian subcontinent where I came from, first through the violence and rapaciousness of the East India Company, and then through the crown itself, the British monarchy decimated the economy and caused the deaths of millions. They destroyed local industries like textiles and shipbuilding through violence, through taxes, through import tariffs. They taxed locals at exorbitant and unprecedented rates and, through torture and cruelty, stole vast wealth which they shipped off to England. Reparations have never been paid by the Empire for its barbarism, and much of the loot is still shamelessly held, including in the form of diamonds in the Queen's crown, all treasures in British museums. This nation has experienced British colonialism in its bloodiest form. My solidarity is with the First Nations people, who never ceded their sovereignty of these lands, and who continue to bravely speak the truth of empire, often at much personal cost. I have the right to talk about this history without being racially vilified. Thank you very much, Senator Faruqi. I'm on your side, love. I'm with you. And we'll hear from the BL from the bush. 
Now, as you know, the BL has been most concerned about anti-protest legislation. And here's a chat that he had with Natasha about protests and community involvement in protests and the importance of protesting. Just because we've had a change of government doesn't mean that we can sit back and relax, listener. Yeah, morning, comrade. Morning, listener. This is the uh, be off in the bush uh, calling in. Openers are all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Well, I was talking about Tasmania and uh, some other states trying to push through legislation for harsher penalties for demonstrating and protesting. Listen, uh, this week, a bit of a surprise for you. I'm just going to give someone else a bit of a crack at telling you what they think demonstration and, and protesting is all about. Comrade Natasha, the working-class poet. Morning, comrade. Welcome and thanks for finding the time for a chat on Left After Breakfast. Natasha, do you think that, that the role of the police will be greater with this new legislation if it gets up and running on the uh, anti-protest laws? Historically, the role of the police in situations like this where people are taking to the streets or people are defending their communities and acting together... The role of the police is to protect private property. You know, we live under capitalism here. That's all we can talk about from our personal experience. But my personal experience of being involved in taking to the streets over many issues, all the demonstrations that have been held in the city and out here, is the police are there to defend private property and the interests of profit. As police powers increase... That's designed to decrease the power of the people. Yeah, and also I just sort of like to go into that is that I think that, and I'm, I'm sure you were there, or I know you were there, and quite a few others, which was probably the biggest demonstration I'd ever been involved in and quite proudly involved in, was when the attack was on, on the workers' health and safety on the jobs and what have you. I think there was, you know, 10, 15,000, if not more, took to the streets. That was when union movements got together and talked amongst each other and had a real good demo. And that did, it didn't have a 100% uh, outcome, but it had some sort of outcome in trying to change some of the laws that were already put in there by the uh, Liberal state government at the time. And also there was demonstrations on injured workers. Yeah, that was during the Kennett era. That was the largest demonstration I'd been in at the time, until then, and there were 100,000 people in the city in Melbourne against privatisation, which the Kennett government were introducing, and all these other anti-worker and anti-union laws, and we've seen the result. We see the result now. That being the case, I think, it, again, it's a, it's a message about that they fear the numbers. What do we have? We don't have all the resources of the state to draw on. We have each other. And we have the numbers, and that's the principle of unionism as well as the principle of people power. That's what we have. We have solidarity with each other, and we have the numbers, and that's what they're scared of. It does seem that way, because when you're looking at the different states, you're looking at Victoria, so you seem to think, well, what's, what's happening here? Well, we've mentioned the logging. What other thing is paramount in the minds of these politicians that they've got to try and get this legislation rushed through? Uh, Tasmania is... is uh, quite evident what's happening down there is it's to do with the rainforests and, and keeping the place pristine as it is. 
obviously Liberal government, developers are hand in pocket there with them. They want to start slashing and burn and making it into something like the Gold Coast or whatever of Queensland down there. So let's let's ramp up the laws. Anyone, to pr- any any sort of protest against capitalism or these developers will be met with the force of the law. And in Queensland, as well, sort of said earlier or lately, was that they've had those draconian laws on the books up there for years. I mean, as I said, mentioned earlier about that CQEB dispute up there. There was even they even legislated up there that if you if you wore a T-shirt or any sort of apparel that was supporting those locked-out workers, you also could have got sloughed up or just pulled off the street and please explain by, by the goose steppers up there. So, yeah, it's a pretty shocking situation that we find ourselves in now today that where once upon a time it was everyone got out to protest and I'm just, you know, it, it was about anything. It could have been closure, closures of local shopping strips for these big multinational bloody supermarkets and that to come in. That protest now can be met with, oh, your obstruction and whatever, and you end up getting slayer. This is the dangerous part of all this stuff. Where does it end? And the police will be at the forefront of this. Again, I look at it from the point of view of the community. And from that point of view, that's what our strength is. The strength is that people support each other. As long as we operate in that way, then taking to the streets is something that we always reserve the right to. We, we assume our freedom from the start. They want to take our freedom away, then we fight for them. We, we assume those freedoms. And I think that's, that's been tried and true. If you look what happened during lockdown, when um, in the US people were taking to the streets during lockdown over the disgrace of, which has now been proven, of the murder of, of George Floyd by the police. And here in Australia, people who've been dealing with the tragedy of black deaths in custody also took to the streets in Melbourne, like they took to the streets around Australia, but they took to the streets in Melbourne, under very, very difficult conditions, being the most vulnerable to catching the coronavirus. But they handled it really well, and they were able to show to people what Aboriginal people have been dealing with and their courage, the courage to do that and to continue to do that. What did they do? They took to the streets once again. This year is the 50th anniversary of the tent embassy in Canberra, which galvanised Aboriginal people around a whole range of really, really important fundamental issues of rights of which they'd been dispossessed of, i.e. the land. And now we have basically a cultural revolution happening from in those 50 years, that transformation... There's still, of course, that fundamental issue of the rights that people have, of course, and their conditions of living, of course. But we can say that tradition amongst Indigenous people and those who've supported those rights over many, many years have made a difference. Yeah, and that was, and that definitely you talk about protests, that was one of the original ones, that putting them tents up there outside the... Um, still um, there. It's still there, that's right, yeah. Probably trying to say here, listener, is that yeah, is that these laws they they'll tell you that they're just there to to stop the the radical protesters or whatever. But as we said before, you and I both know that that's uh, that's just a smokescreen for um, more unlimited power. 
would you like to share with us your thoughts or your earliest involvement in you, you protesting and demonstrating? Sort of lead us up to where you sort of are today. Yeah, I was brought up in a political family, so I was pretty political at an early age. My first experience of being in a massive demonstration was the days of the sit-ins in Swanson Street in Melbourne that uh, the likes of Jim Cairns and others were leading to get us out of the Vietnam War. And good to say that with his election, (laughs) the government that he was in, um, we did get out of the Vietnam War, we did stop conscription, and a whole lot of other things happened as a result of that too. So, I mean, that leaves quite a big mark on you. Um, Most of my adult life, it's also been the mark of the peace movement. So I was involved in a lot of different kinds of demonstrations taking to the streets over the years in the peace movement, anti-apartheid demonstrations. I'm sure people have memories of lots of those. Support of the Palestinians uh, against both wars in Iraq and famously in 2003, I think, the 14th of February, 10 million people around the world demonstrated, took to the streets to stop them going for another war in Iraq. And we've seen the consequences of the powers that be ignoring that. Uh, we're still dealing with it. The people in Iraq, obviously, are still dealing with it, as uh, many in the Middle East. And a lot of other issues over the years, you know, I'm sure the listeners will be able to think of many, many that they were involved in just from the peace movement. So that's on a bigger scale. May Day, having gone along to May Day marches as a, even as a child and taking my own children being involved actively in May Day, that, that gives us that think global, act local kind of consciousness because we take the whole world into account. Today, here we are... One of the major issues confronting us as human beings and people on the planet being climate change. And a lot of these issues about changing these laws and increasing the power of the state are about the inevitable consequences of worsening economic conditions and worsening environmental conditions and the clash between the old world and the world that needs to be built out of the old world. So I think some of these laws reflect that that clash is going to get more and more intense. I suppose the other thing I'd reflect on is obstruction clauses in the new laws in Victoria affecting the local community up here opposing logging. When my children were little and I lived in the inner suburb, then we had our protests related to the welfare of our local community and our children. For example, setting up the community health centre in Brunswick all those many years ago. The minister at the time, Tom Roper, Minister for Health, who was in the Labor government at the time, and was the local member, was more aligned with the AMA than the local community and opposed salaried doctors at that community health centre. Without going into all the details of why we needed them, I'm sure the listeners would be able to work that out. We had one protest after another after another and we won. And so there are still salaried doctors at the community health centre in Brunswick all these many, many years later. 
Another one was you'd think it was a basic thing where my children went to school. It was on a very, very busy road in East Coburg. And the parents got together and marched our toddlers and our prams up to the town hall to demand a school crossing supervisor. And we won. These are really small things, but again, I go back to the point that we act from the point of view of living in a community and we think about living in a community on a planet and we always maintain our right to go to the streets to protect each other and to protect the community that we live in. Yeah, look, that's great, Natasha. Thanks for that. The history of what it means, it means to every one of us that uh, when when we put boots on the street. Thanks again for your input. I just hope that's a little bit informative for you, listener. So it's the BL from the bush. I'll go out in the same old way. Uh, Dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. Good morning from Left After Breakfast, the only show left.
And let's hear from Glenn, the 3CR resident historian, and it's about housework and the campaign for paid housework. I'm going to speak about wages for housework. Wages for housework, my word. Well, way back in 1972, the Wages for Housework campaign was launched and uh, the headline in the US magazine National Enquirer said, Hey fellas, could you afford $48,000 a high-bridge women? Guess what a housewife is worth? Clare workers, housewives, child carers, cleaners, chefs, dishwashers, nurses and family counsellors. And the Wages for Housework campaign kicked off 50 years ago this year, 1972. So that was in 1972, yeah. That's right. It was kicked off by the International Feminist Collective and the Conference of Padova, Italy. And it spread with campaigns. US, UK, Canada, Italy. Italy. And they realised that women do so much unpaid work and like, where's the recognition for it? I mean, the caring work isn't a volatile destiny or love that's done. It's because of capitalism, that work needs a wage. Women's unpaid labour isn't accounted for in the GDP. Uh, women's unpaid labour is not accounted for in no. the GDP. Housework, you know, the cleaning of dishes, changing the nappies, mowing the lawns, whatever. None of it's packed up from GDP. And it's essential for capitalism to reproduce itself. These work gets, gets done, but it's not paid for. So the wages for housework campaign kicked off 50 years ago this year. And they said, all women are workers who get the cogs of capitalism turning. And we should have a return for it, a recognition for it, you know? The question of housework was a question about the term conditions for all women, was one of the views put forward. I have a book I studied at oh, years about that time called The Sociology of Housework. Yep. It's a good book. I still have it. Well, people like Nicole Cox and uh, Emma Federici made it quite clear in their booklet, you know, playing from the kitchen, wage for housework. But there's a line being artificial love in work and non-work. About housework is considered non-work compared to wage labour. And this is part of the push for you know, the wages of a housework campaign. This is real work, you know. Changing nappies isn't like, it isn't a fa- it's a real job to keep the family going, to keep the system going. Anyway, the wages of housework campaign went out through the 70s and it organised women in different areas, different parts of the workforce. And we saw the first prostitutes collective. We saw black women for wages for housework. And um, there's different ways it manifests itself. The women's work was a form of labour, made of recognition. And it combined theory with actual hard yards and politicisation. And um, somehow we've lost our way over the last few decades. And no longer this campaign has been forgotten about. And women work harder than ever in the home. Women work harder ever raising families, for social reproduction. But there's no recognition for it. And um, again, no government counted in the GDP. Housework is not recognised. We know back in 1975, the UN said, okay, we should consider, you know, housework as part of GDP, but it wasn't taken any further. So, um, yeah, 50 years down the track, the wages of housework campaign is as relevant as ever. And we can learn from that. And so, you know, you making the sandwiches, you changing nappies, that is work just as much as a man pressing a button in a stock exchange or driving a train. Some people have lost these well, things. Driving a train's a bit more like work than sitting in the stock exchange. Well, but they consider it work. They consider it productive, pressing buttons to make money. You know, aren't they the real workers, the, the entrepreneurs, the risk takers? 
And that's called work, you know, pressing buttons to make money. Whereas, you know, raising four kids at home, you know, feeding, cleaning, isn't considered work. As I keep saying, 50 years ago, the Wages of Housework campaign was kicked off. And has it been forgotten? Has it been bypassed? What's happened? But it's good to recall those lessons and those struggles. It's been totally ignored 50 years down the track. It's still ignored as it was then. Well? I think it was just... um it's not wages for housework, it's for wages for a carer. People get paid to be a carer. I suppose you should be paid to care for someone, to be their nurse, to uh, go and shopping and buy food and cook for them and feed them and clean up after them and then clean their clothes. Oh, look, in my job, I'm the age of carers. I encounter quite a few carers working amongst the cohort I work with. But again, they're paid carers and so many, many more. Women, especially unpaid carers... And yeah, at least carers are recognised to an extent of a wage, but the unpaid caring, and how many women have to raise, not just their children, but maybe their husband or their parents, and that work, raising those families, isn't recognised in GDP. And if you could put a monetary value to it, what would it be worth? So anyway, I think it's good to just resurrect these things in and discuss the fact this campaign started 50 years ago, and let's put it back on the radar. Wages for housework? I say go for it. Yeah, go for it indeed. 3CR Housework is such a chore You make the beds, do the dishes, dust the piano, clean the floor And then Three months later hmm, You've got to go back and do it all again Quentin Crisp I read somewhere He said 
flourishy ending on a bit of music housework blues performed by jan preston from my life as a piano on the abc you're listening to 3cr community radio melbourne's voice of dissent 3cr community radio 855 on the am dial streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3cr digital in melbourne Well, I have tracked down that bag man. Between you and me, listener, it's easier to track him down these days than it used to be, mainly because he can't run quite as fast as he used to, which is just as well, because I can't run as fast as I used to either. Well, hello there, bag man, and how are you? Good morning, Susan. I'm as fit as a merry bull. We've had that discussion before. Well, one of these days I might just <laughs> get to see a Melly Bull. Well, yes, you may, Susan. You've got to go to the Melly first. And oh. I got a bit confused last time. I thought the Melly was down south, but you corrected me and told me it's not there. No, it's up north somewhere, <laughs> somewhere up north. <laughs> yeah, somewhere. It's only up the road by boat. That's all. No, you can't get there on a boat. It was a bit of a joke by me there, Susan, but uh, there you go. (laughs) The melee is affecting me. It must have done something to my sense of humour. Yeah. Now, Susan, we're going to continue on from last week's series about why I became political in the first place. But before we get to that, I'm going to... No, I'll come to that. We're going to be talking about topless waitresses and topless bar attendants in a couple of minutes' time. It's part of the series that I'm going to tell people about how I became involved in the union movement and how I was affected by certain aspects of the union movement. So I hope that it's good listening for some people. Something like your memoirs, isn't it, Batman? My memoirs on Facebook. That's simply because I can't get anybody... I haven't been approached by anybody to write my memoirs, to put them in a book, so I'm going to put them on Facebook so that they will be part of the history of the trade union movement in this country. No one else thought of it except me first. Anyway, Susan, the boy from Brody rung yesterday to say that the Grim Reaper had come for him last night, but he was very lucky. He was able to beat him off with a vacuum cleaner. Now, you've got to talk about 
Dyson with death. Oh, bag man. <laughs> uh, and I'm reminded, Susan, uh, it was about eight years ago that uh, a good comrade of yours and ours and a good comrade of the trade union movement, a bloke called Bob Burrows, uh, who worked with me at the liquor trade union and, and was involved in the uh, topless waitresses saga, but, and then he went on to work for the nurses' union. But anyway, it was eight years ago that Bob Burrows passed on, and him and me helped write a book called Rip Off Ronald. We're talking about McDonald's restaurants. McDonald's sued for 358000 This is 1981. 358000 Basically, a king's ransom. Oh, well, they never got a seat out of me, and I could have sworn then, but I know that you don't like swearing on this program. Then we wrote another book, or another leaflet, called Rat Eat Rat, about the exploitative labour practices and damage to the environment of unhealthy food. And we got away with that one too. Well, were you sued for it? No, because the simple thing was, uh, Susan, when we, we produced the second leaflet called Rat Eat Rat, and we were quoting the original founder of McDonald's when he said, this is not an industry, this is rat eat rat. And oh. we forgot, <laughs> and believe it or not, Susan, in our wisdom, we forgot to sign the leaflet and authorise it. So we got away with that one. Just thinking of those young people mm-hmm. in England, remember? Um, yes, yes. There were two two young people in in England who were sued by McDonald's, and the publication that they quoted was the publications that we printed here in the state of Victoria, and that went on to be the longest libel trial in England's history. And in the end, the both of them got off. Yeah, there was the MacLibel case. MacLibel, it's famous all over the world. It lasted just over 10 years, the longest-running libel case ever in English history. It sure was, Susan. And uh, we we passed our commiserations on to those people because the, the stuff they published was the stuff that we had published previously in Victoria. But anyway, that's another story another time. Now, Susan, before I left the liquor trade union, which represented brewery, hotel, restaurant and fast food workers, there were some campaigns yet to be won. In the late 70s and early 80s, a new scourge was being inflicted on workers in the hotel and restaurant industries. Now, that was topless bar attendants and waitress. Now, the scourge was to spread quickly unless there was a united campaign by not only this union, the liquor trade union, but unions in general combined. Union organisers would have to show extraordinary amount of courage in an industry renowned for a fierce criminal element that this abhorrent practice was being introduced into organisers trying to implement OHS practices and blatant sexual discrimination against other women working in the industry where this practice was to spread 
would become the norm. Now, if, if the union was allowing topless waitresses, topless bar attendants and whatever to become the norm, it would spread throughout the whole industry. Now, the criminal and other shady elements trying to introduce such a practice were sure to put every obstacle in our path. Organisers visiting these shonky premises were routinely threatened with violence. Knives were held to their throats, and in two incidents, two organisers taken out the back of a premises and guns drawn and held to their heads. Women organisers were threatened with rape or even worse. The union had to start taking these threats very seriously to protect their staff. So they adopted the attitude of no top, no beer. The brewery workers stepped up to the plate and decided to join in their campaign to protect fellow unions working in the same industry. Top work meetings were held in every brewery. Resolutions were passed and industrial action promised. Brewery workers were firm in their resolve that should this novel practice become the norm, decent, hard-working, intelligent, well-groomed women employees, not willing to go topless, would be extremely limited in finding work. So the no-top, no-beer practice was introduced. Now, bosses indulging in this practice were visited in told in no uncertain terms that the blatant discrimination against workers not willing to dress in a way which would place them in danger of sexual assault because only women with perfect bodies would ultimately be employed. It was also the fact that the employers were willing to use these women by paying them well over the going rate. Sometimes, oh, up to, sometimes, up, sometimes up to five times the rate, leaving other hard-working women to survive on the hard-won wages and conditions forth for them and the union. Now, Susan, it's going to get worse from now on. What I'm about to say, if people don't like it, they can put their fingers in their ears, but don't turn off whatever you do. I'm a bit worried myself now. What are you doing? Well, the Tarmac Hotel, which is still in existence out in the western suburbs of Melbourne, went one step further. Pornographic movies in the bar and the oh. lounge. Oh, can you believe this? Can you believe this? Firstly, in sight of the female staff and obviously in sight of drunken, Sexually motivated men. Can you believe that? Pornographic movies in both the bar and the lounge of the Tarmac Hotel. Oh, I don't know, bad man. <laughs> Susan, you can imagine female staff walking home to their cars in the car park in the dark after a late shift in the presence of horny drunks. No, no, it just doesn't need thinking about. After protracted negotiations with management, they saw no harm in the practice and they suggested I, the bag man, was a bit of a prude for trying what? to... Yeah, a bit of a prude. 
for trying to wipe out this practice. Susan, the insult, a prude. I couldn't wait to let our members of the brewery uh, to know of my failed talks with management at the Tarmac Hotel. Oh, dear. What what an insult. They call a 40-year-old prude. The instant reaction of solidarity with the female workers was to pass a resolution. This is a brewery worker. Pass a resolution confirming previous industrial action. It went a bit further now because it was no porn, no top, no beer. Fair enough. Yeah. So all the Sunday papers were under it. Five topless women turned up in the union office the next day, organised by the criminal element in the hotel industry and the sensationalist media in tandem. In fronting up at the front desk, I was summoned to front the women with cameras, flashing and videos, whirring hopefully with my face flash with embarrassment because... I was. I was a prude. I didn't know how. The, the confession The confession here is, Susan, I don't mind half-naked women. Well, if no exploitation's involved, I don't mind. Well, you could have knocked me over with a wet tramp ticket. They continued the theme in the headlines of the newspapers that I was a 40-year-old prude, and they published my photo. Oh, oh. yeah, the shame. Dignity, how was I going to hold my head up in the trade union movement for attempting to wipe out this insidious practice? I even had thoughts of people crossing the road when approaching, people spitting on me in the street every time they picked up a right-wing rag seeing my mug on the front page. Oh, there's that (laughs) prude again. No, Susan... The victories came fast and furious. Every hotel employing topless bar attendants or waiters were now on a final warning to seek this practice or answer to the union members employed at the brewery. An absolutely fascinating uh, act of solidarity. First casualty was the Tarmac Hotel, but they were warned. I told them to consider filling their cellars with coal because the brewery workers were not going to supply any beer sourced by their labour from that point on. And it was a, it was a fact that a cellar full of coal might help them survive the coming winter. Anyway, it's called cap in hand. The cellars were soon running low on the amber liquid and bosses conflicted with taking down their own pornographic movies and sacking the women prepared to break down hard-won conditions for a price soon mellowed. Now, as Paul Keddie would go on to say, at a later date in history, a conga line of publicans and their wives beat a path to the union office to offer their sincere condolences for putting profit before the women that they were appointing. The Tarmac was was the first hotel. Many were to follow, but not before the criminal element had exhausted all their means of intimidation. Now, personally, I was taken out the back of what is now called Maxim's, an adult entertainment in Sydney Road, Brunswick, at the height of the campaign and had a gun placed 
at my head. This is true. Trying to, to convince me to see their reason. I thought for a long moment, but I'm still here. I'm still here, but the Red Grundies needed some attention. But the sexist nature of employment was to trickle into, into other bosses willing to make a quick quid for using women as a tool. You may remember, Susan. I'm pretty sure you do remember. Can you believe at the same time as our campaign was in full swing, the grubby sections of the employer group began employing topless sandwich hands, <laughs> topless hardware assistants, and topless hairdressers? Uh, I shouldn't laugh about this because it was actually a practice that was uh, uh, spreading throughout Victoria. And thankfully, the union was able to cease the practice before seeing topless parliamentarians. Oh, oh, God, no, no. Uh, Or worse still, half-naked buses. Oh, worse. Susan, there is a funny side. On a different note, when publicans indulge in this practice, tried to justify the exploitation of women. They were asked if they would employ wives or girlfriends behind the bar, no, semi-naked. Oh, now, yeah. Now, yeah, well, I tell you what, those were, those were fighting words. How dare they said to me that you would even suggest that we would subject our loved ones to such a display of semi-nudity in public. Well, then, I, I said to him, how about you go? You go about doing a few hours with your penis hanging out, but make sure it gets nowhere near the drip tray. Oh, bad man. <laughs> oh, it's getting, it's getting crude, I know, Susan. It's getting crude. Oh, anyway, with tremendous help from the brewery workers, and the militant women in the workforce of the Lincoln Trade Union. This degrading practice is now a thing of the past. Now only seen in a very few, a very few exclusive men's clubs where the men go to perv. Uh, they wouldn't perv on their wives, but they go to perv on other people's wives. Anyway, next episode... We'll go on to that uh, next week. Next episode, before I was recruited into the most militant trade union at the time, the Food Preservers Union, for one more campaign. So I'm going to be telling you next week about wage theft, and we discussed this last week. Wage theft has been going on in the hotel, restaurant and catering industry for many, many years. George Calambaras doesn't hold a candle to some of the theft uh, that went on 50 years ago in this industry. So I'm asking people to listen to Left After Breakfast, your very popular radio program, every Friday morning starting at 9am. 3CR is 8.55 on the AL dial. If you don't fight, you lose. I was just thinking of George Columbaris, and I wish you hadn't reminded me about him. <laughs> oh, well, he, he was one of many high-profile chefs that exploited people in the industry. They indulged in wage theft to a maximum degree. As I said, wage theft in this industry 
is not uh, a new phenomenon. But still, what a man George Colin Byron is. What a man, eh? What a mm. big, tough man. Remember at the football at a soccer match one day? Well, not oh, yes. football as we know, but cultural. And yeah. he was just, you know, trotting around the field there, spurring on the poor, hapless players. And someone called out from the stands, pay the staff, you bastard. <laughs> and George Columbaris run around like a, like a wounded bull, leapt over the barrier, hurtled up to the third tier where a teenage boy was, grabbed that teenage boy and knocked him to the ground. That's right. This is George Columbaris, a big grown man, a hefty man, a muscular man with a bit of porch, yeah, but still carrying <laughs> a lot of weight on him. He knocked down this teenager. That's right. But in and court, it... in court, Columbaris said, that boy said bad things about my mother. Death right. That was his defence. It's always the defence. That person said something about my family. We know that <laughs> that is utter Bullshit. The young man said, pay your staff, you bastard. Uh, that's all he said, but it gave George the right to jump the fence and clock him. And it had nothing to do with George's family until he got to court. Not at all, Susan. Look, I might mention that next week we might cover the war in Ukraine also because I believe that there is some bias reporting now oh, my, really now really? before someone accuses me of being a, a kremlin communist pinko supporter uh, i will make a mention of this next week but in the meantime susan why don't we just go out in the same old way why not dare to throw dare to win if you don't fight you lose good morning from left after breakfast Okay, everyone, that's it for this episode. Thanks for your company. Thanks for the ride. See you next week, same time, same place. Until then, cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast. (laughs) 